And thank you to everybody who made it possible. This is an amazing event. We just couldn't believe uh, this room would fill up. Just amazing. Um, and the room's filled with business innovators, uh, creators, technology designers. And I love the description of our community because it emulates the characteristics that God uses to describe himself. He describes himself as the creator. And high tech is, even at our faith-based founding as a country, how we emerge from a startup to a superpower in such a brief period of time was our ability to innovate faster than the rest of the world. And a lot of that is driven by people pursuing the creation to better understand the creator. It's an amazing story and I just love being part of the community. I know this event is known for like great business leaders and uh, tech famous people and military heroes and the like. Knowing I didn't fit either of those categories, I tried to come up with a way to explain my being here. It took a little while, but I eventually came up with one. It was from my uh, basketball playing days at Geneva College. Um, every athlete likes to make a difference, have an impact, set records, have an enduring legacy that lasts long after you're gone, and I'm no different. And Geneva has a rich tradition. Uh, the first college basketball game ever played was at Geneva College. Who knew? Um, March Madness literally traces its roots back to Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. So I brought a picture in to show you how hoops were played back in the day. I don't want to mislead you, though. Our games weren't always this crowded. <laughs> and, and fame came for me uh, my junior year. I sparked the Golden Tornadoes to a 1-23 season. And was named... <laughs> now I was named the most valuable player of the worst team in the school's history. At the athletic banquet that year, I can still remember the coach. He's standing there and he said, you know what? I don't think we could have lost without him. And so that's how I got the MVP. Uh, the best thing that happened to me coming through Geneva, though, was Gwen, and Casey was right. And uh, we've been on an amazing journey ever since. And I'm going to share a little bit of that experience here momentarily. But before I dive in, uh, I want to talk about, uh, just share a few thoughts. Our culture has become fractured. We've become polarized in ways that uh, we've lost our ability to just have discourse around things that matter most and tend to vilify and so on. And I'm going to appeal to the best of us, ask that you would extend grace to me um, as we talk about things that matter most. And my hope is that we can apply the intellectual rigor that this room is known for and wrestle with the circumstances of our lives with humility, with honesty, and with a degree of openness that allows us to move from colleagues to friends. We'll do so much better if we could journey as friends. And uh, Stephen uh, Covey in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People says, we're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. And my intent is to share our experience with you guys and then ask that, hey, over time, a lunch, a phone call, let's get together and I want to hear yours. My purpose is to encourage each of us to consider the claims of Christ in the incredible transaction that occurred on our behalf of forgiveness, purpose, and hope. 
It was July 19th, 1999. I was standing at the dome at Johns Hopkins with my good friend and neighbor, Frank Finelli. And uh, our kids played together. Frank lived across the street. Gwen and Kathy were friends. This was a different day, a day where he could possibly lose his life. And so we prayed, and we went upstairs, uh, and I sat with him in the pre-surgical unit. Nurses came in and out. They gave him his IVs, started giving him the medications, get him ready for the surgery, checking his vital signs. And then about 7, they came in and said, it's time. And Frank stood up, and I'll never forget it, kissed his wife Kathy goodbye, and was wheeled away to an operating room where he would risk his life for mine. I'll never get over it. I don't want to get over it. I'm hoping by the time we're through, you won't be able to get over it either. I've been to the brink of death three times, and I'd like to share with you what we learned in the process. The first is that God is in the details. Secondly, when all else is gone, he is enough. And third, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter how far away from him you feel or how far you've drifted, we're never beyond his grace. Gwen and I were, you know, married right out of school, moved to D.C., new jobs, new place, new life. I mean, it was just uh, amazing uh, how we got off to such a sweet start. And then after just a bit of time, all of a sudden I, I hit this season where I was just totally exhausted. Like, I'd have to pull over on the beltway on the way home just to uh, have enough strength to, to complete the drive. And, and so uh, I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm going to graduate school. I'm working a lot of hours, burning the candle at both ends. But Gwen wasn't buying it. And she said, you know, you need to get checked and just see what's going on. And it put us on a journey that we could never have imagined. Um, and eventually we had to ask the question, is it possible the crucible of life could be an agent of grace? Um, I was suffering from a disease called primary sclerosing cholangitis. It's widening and narrowing the bile ducts. And so your liver acts like a filter uh, for your blood system. And instead of the toxins being filtered out, they would actually spill back onto the liver and it causes scarring, then cirrhosis, and then cancer. And the, the disease seemed to progress no matter what. I mean, once I got the diagnosis, I mean, it was just stunning. And I was traveling for work and I'll never forget it. You know, over the course of time, the medications, we kept tweaking them, trying to hold the thing at bay. And then I get a call from my doctor. I'm on a business trip in Florida. And he said, Jim, we just got the lab results back, and it's apparent the disease is broken through. You're going to need a liver transplant. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do next. Um, I didn't know whether to call Gwen. You know, how do you, how do you process through that? So I waited until I got home and uh, shared with her what I learned. We had Ashley and Jeremy now, um, and we cried, and we prayed. And we tried to prepare each other for what might lie ahead. And I soon went through months of testing, and the, and the idea was um, to get on the transplant list, and you get uh, a certain score from your labs, and you move up in priority in terms of ranking, and uh, no matter what I did, it just felt like I, I just couldn't get, my disease didn't score well, and the, the doctor said, the problem with your uh, condition is instead of moving up the list as you get sicker, you're going to come off the list. It's going to turn to cancer. You need to find a living donor. I had never heard of it. Gwen and I thought it was like science fiction. Um, apparently there was like 50 done in the world at the time. And, uh, and then all the emotion kicks in. And you can imagine this. What do I, how am I going to let somebody intervene on my behalf? What if they die in the process? How could I ever live with myself? On the other hand, what if I don't do it? 
And what do I say to Gwen and Ashley and Jeremy? I had an opportunity, but I didn't take it. I'm sorry. And it's in the middle of all this. Uh, we drive back home, and I, I get a call from my good friend and former pastor, Michael Easley, who had been tracking all of my Hopkins appointments. He said, Jim, I'm really sorry to hear the news, but I'm going to be your donor, and you didn't ask, so you can't say no. I'm like, Michael, you have no idea what you're signing up for. They had just adopted two kids, and now they had four. I said, what about Cindy? And he said, Jim, we're just going to start down a path. If God has a different plan, he'll show us. Next thing you know, it's Michael and Cindy and Gwen and I going back and forth to Hopkins. Now, when you're sick physically, you're also compromised emotionally. You're fragile. And I was in that state, and I'm watching my friend go through their six tests, each of them progressively more invasive, life-threatening in and of themselves. And I'm watching somebody endure this on my behalf, and I know what they're like. I've been through them. And it was overwhelming. It was like too much. And so we were coming back after the first day of testing, uh, we dropped Michael off at the church. He had a wedding rehearsal to attend to. And then uh, Gwen's driving because uh, physically I'm not able to at this point. Um, Cindy's in the front seat. And I said, you know, we love you guys. I can't believe what you're trying to do for us. But it's too much. I'm not going to let you do it. Cindy spins around and puts a finger in my chest. And I just want to say that everybody needs a Cindy Easley in their life. Uh, you know who these people are. They, they just say what needs to be said no matter what. And she says, you know what your problem is? You're so busy trying to stiff arm everybody who's trying to help you. You don't know how to receive. And if Michael feels led to do this for you, it's not fair for you to deny us the blessing. Isn't that the problem with most of us? We, want, we can't receive. We want control. We want life on our terms. Even when I'm dying, I'm trying to negotiate, get things my way, and, and control the whole thing. Uh, I had asked God to help me. I knew I needed to trust him, and uh, I needed to trust him for Michael's life as well. So Michael completes all the tests. It's now Tuesday. The surgery is the following Monday. We're in a process called pre-op. They come in and describe what it's like for him as the donor. He's going to be operated on two and a half hours before they take me. He's got to totally commit, not even knowing if the surgery is going to work. Then they describe for me what it's like in the, uh, uh, to be the recipient. And the doctors walk in and said, guys, we're going to call it off. Michael, the test you had run yesterday showed the configuration for you and your liver doesn't quite align with Jim's and it's tricky. So we think you'd be okay in the surgery, but there's too much risk for him. We're going to call it off. And it felt like there was silence in that room. Doctors leave. It was like minutes. Uh, we called Gwen and Cindy. Uh, Michael prayed for us. We drive back, but we're guys. We compartmentalize. I think we even stopped at an auto parts store or something on the way home. Um, like nothing happened, like we went fishing or something. And uh, we get to his house and I stick my hand out to thank him for what he was about to do for us. And uh, it's a little embarrassing, but this is what happened. Uh, we, we broke down and cried like boys. Michael, because he wouldn't be my donor, and me because my friend wouldn't have to endure the unthinkable. And then my sister calls. She said, Jimmy, don't change the date. I'll come, I'll be there tomorrow. I'll take all those tests that take three weeks. I'll do them in three days. Um, and I won't have time to think about it. And we'll do the surgery on Monday. Now, my sister is afraid of needles, let alone a 12 to 14 hour surgery. So she comes down. Sure enough, she's there. She takes the three days. Normally take three weeks. Friday comes. Doctors are excited. It's a match. She's terrified. She now has to go home and say goodbye to her husband and her children. Now, my parents head from Ohio coming to Virginia with two of their kids going into surgery on Monday. My sister calls on Saturday and she said, 
Jimmy, I love you. I want to do this in the worst way, but I can't. I'm too afraid. And then all the emotion comes out, all the angst. And Gwen and I are trying to console her and, and help her deal with this. You can imagine how she feels. And we're like, it's going to be okay. We, but we don't know what lies ahead for us either. Then from across the street comes my neighbor, Frank Finelli. He walks into my den. I can remember it like yesterday. He said, Jim, sorry to hear what happened. I've never been sick a day in my life, and maybe this is why. Now, you can imagine the emotion here. And, <laughs> and Finelli, he comes in. He's like a, you know, like a bulldog kind of thing. It's an event when you meet him. And I, I said to Frank, I said, you have no idea what you're signing up for. You, you just, Frank, you don't even, you can't do it. He said, of course I can. I have health, and I'm just going to pass it along. Now, Finelli, he's an army ranger. He's the kind of guy that jumps out of airplanes for an extra $25 in his paycheck at the end of the month. And uh, we later learned from Kathy, he said, I can't just sit across the street and watch him die. Next thing you know, it's Frank and I going back and forth to Hopkins. He goes through all the tests. It's a match. Now it's July 19th. We're standing at the Dome at Johns Hopkins, 530 in the morning. Arms around each other's shoulders, praying for each other and our families, asking the Lord to help us. Whatever we're about to face, that we could get through it. We go upstairs, and then in come the nurses, IVs, medications, checking the vital signs. Frank and I are sitting there in hospital gowns across from each other in this little room. It's a bit awkward. And Frank and I kind of look alike. And this is a fact about which I've tried to console him. And, we're, and I said to him, I said, it dawns on me. I'm like, Finelli, whatever you do, do not fall asleep now. If they take me first and throw out your liver, we're both history. And I'll never forget it, how Frank, when they came in and said it was time, he hugged Gwen and I, kissed Kathy goodbye, and went away to an operating room uh, to do the unimaginable. Well, let's talk about the lessons learned. The first one is that God is in the details. You know, I told you the risk in this was the bile ducts. So they get in to do the surgery on Frank, right? They got to go two and a half hours. They find he's got an extra bile duct. Who ever heard of such a thing? God is in the details. The second one was when my sister's going through pre-op, that process, there's a nurse there, or a physician assistant, who's really invested in our family, really takes an interest in what's going on. And my concern was, how could Gwen endure a 12 to 14 hour surgery in the waiting room, not knowing if we're coming out? And uh, of course, that surgery never occurs. And a month later, she hears it's Frank. So she calls and said, Jim, I just found out. The pediatrician for my kids is the father of your surgeon. So I went to him and said, how about if I stay in the operating room so I could report out to Gwen and Kathy and let them know what's going on so they don't have to wait all day. God is in the details. I had my prayer answered by a total stranger that I had met one time in conjunction with a surgery that didn't occur. That's an amazing set of circumstances. Well, the first transplant never settled into the normal range. Frank saved my life for sure. But um, there was a lot of complications. And so uh, I would go in about every three weeks and I would have a stent inserted uh, into the liver and would help sustain the function. And the one time when that was occurring, this does not happen at Hopkins, but it happened, uh, an infection was introduced that progressed and became uh, sepsis and turned to septic shock. That's when your blood becomes toxic, your organs begin to shut down. Um, I was rushed to the hospital in an emergency setting. By the time Gwen got there, they said, we don't know if he's going to live through the night. It took eight months to come out of that. I lost my ability to stand. I was in a wheelchair. I was in a walker. Uh, 
It's the hardest thing I've ever had to do physically. Made a transplant like a walk in the park. And Gwen, while I was in the midst of this, you know, in the hospital for a long time, mentally I was just struggling. She said, I'll take him. She brought me home, did all the care they were doing in the hospital, and taught me how to walk again. She loved me back to life and helped me learn to walk again. The doctors told us, we don't know how you survive sepsis. You're never going to survive it twice. You're either going to get a second transplant or you're going to get sepsis again and die. Well, that's really a fun conversation to have with your doctor. I just got to tell you. 18 months later, I'm here at Tyson's and the call came. And they're like, today's your day. Let me tell you, all of a sudden time goes like this. Just stops. And I have to tell you, when you're at the top of a transplant list, it's an amazing place to be. You wake up every day knowing it could be your last. And it's so rich. You, you, everything is precious. It's, it's just incredible. And I have this, my faith was never stronger than when all else was stripped away. And when all else is gone, he is enough. Clarity in living is amazing peace. These promises I can attest are true. Um, every little thing, dinner, holding hands, going for a walk. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's precious. But when the call came for that second transplant, I did what I always do. I started negotiating. And the doctors tell you, you could qualify, ask a bunch of questions. So I start asking the questions. And the nurse says, no. Dr. Pruitt says, you need to get here. This is your chance. This is your best chance. And what I was confronted with, if I wanted to live, I had to take the next step and accept the offer. So I called Gwen. I said, go get the kids. Today's the day. So I start driving home. I call my parents to say goodbye. I called Gwen's parents to say goodbye because I knew we wouldn't see either one of them before I got to the surgery. I called Frank to say goodbye. I can't reach him. I leave him a message. I called the president. I was at Harris at the time. I said, look, if something happens tonight, take care of Gwen and the kids. Make sure they get everything that's coming. Then I'll never forget it. The four of us, when I finally do get home, uh, huddled in our kitchen, asking the Lord to help us through what we're about to face and praying for a family that today I have yet to meet who in the midst of their grief would afford me another chance at life. And then Gwen and I drove away and said goodbye to the kids. I want to tell you to drive away from your children for the last time is heartrending. And in each of these episodes, I, I walked what I describe as the corridor of death. And it looks something like this. You have a fixed endpoint. You know it's coming. It's today. Or it's right around the corner. And you start to jettison everything that you spend the majority of your time with. Your money, your things, your work, they're the first to go. You walk a little further, you say goodbye to your friends. A little further still, you say goodbye to your extended family. A little further still, say goodbye to your kids. You say goodbye to Gwen. And then you stand alone. I want to tell you that's an awesome place to be if you know Christ. When all else is gone, he's enough. I was told I'd probably die in surgery, but it was my only chance to live. And Gwen and I drove to UVA where the surgery was going to take place. We're reminiscing, and it's like an incredible conversation. It's two days in front of Thanksgiving. It's rush hour. You can imagine the traffic. We're trying to find a way there. We're calling people to help us navigate. And uh, we're talking about our 20 years of marriage, talking about the future as if we might have one, but appreciating the gravity of the moment that this could be it. We arrived at UVA, and we went to the fifth floor as directed. And uh, I remember Dr. Pruitt walked in. He got his coat over, lab coat over his shoulder. Hey, I knew you were coming. Took a nap. I'm ready to go. And he heads off to the operating room. And then they're trying to hurry to get us ready because time's important and it's now taking hours for us to get there. And uh, finally they say, look, uh, we're in a hurry. Can you walk to the operating room? I'm like, well, sure. <laughs> and and uh, so Gwen and I are walking from the 
fifth floor to the second where the surgery is going to take place. And I press the elevator uh, button, you know, and the door opens. And it's Frank. He drove three hours to say goodbye. The only guy who knows what it's like to walk into that operating room. We went down to the second floor. I thanked him for the thousandth time for what he had done for me. And then I turned to Gwen, who's been the anchor of our family, whose unwavering faith had been at the heart of who we are. And I, I thanked her again for loving me to this point and getting us to today. I gave her my ring, I kissed her goodbye, and I walked into the operating room. And then they said, hey, can you get up on the table? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, but uh, I feel like I'm the only one doing anything around here. When do you people go on the clock? And, and once I got up on the table, they asked, can you stick your arm out? And they fastened it. They stick my other arm out, and they fastened it. And I remember praying, Lord, if I were to die tonight, thank you for giving me the privilege of dying in the position of the cross. And I knew this would be my last few moments, so before they put the mask on, I said to the people in the surgical room, um, really appreciate you guys being here. I hope you had a good night's sleep. And this is you're going to, you got to pay attention. This has got to be your, one of your best days. And then uh, before they uh, put me under, I had this prayer. Um, Lord, if you could best be honored by taking my life, it's yours. But if you have a plan for me, wake me up and I can't wait to serve. The next thing I heard was Gwen's voice. And it was like euphoria. Not because I lived, but because I knew I had this great purpose. And it's what led me to today. I get to work in health. IT, in the technology sector, because of what I experienced as a patient. I get to work with the military. I get to work with veterans like Frank. I get to help families like ours who are trying to get better health care. And I feel like I get a chance to try to make a difference. But before anybody jumps to the notion that our faith stems from things turning out well, I got to let you know that faith in Christ is a total surrender. It's unconditional. And just as I was getting better, our daughter Ashley got sick. Three years ago last month, my kids went through the same surgery I just described. It's not supposed to be genetically predisposed. My little girl's dying in a wheelchair. When our son Jeremy, both of them are here today, risked his life for hers. God took me to a place I didn't know I needed to go. I had control when I was sick. I had no control when it was them. I remember praying, Lord, you know I would do this a thousand times and not flinch. I wouldn't walk away. Why do you go, got to go past me to my kids? That's not a very elegant prayer, but it was an honest one. And what I later learned again was it wasn't about me. It was about him. I came to appreciate Gwen in ways I could not have otherwise. I went from the operating room to the waiting room where she had been all along. I got to tell you, it's a lot harder. I admitted to Gwen and the kids, hey, I'm really struggling with Ashley's suffering. And Ashley, who's totally emaciated, much sicker than I ever was, literally months to live, she says, Dad, you need to read this book. Your God is too safe. Okay, Ashley, I'll read the book. And what I found was, it's a diagnosis. It describes two countries in Africa that the borders don't abut. There's about 300 yards in between. They call it borderland. And it's a metaphor for the Christian life. You're going from a place to a place. You know where you belong, but you got to hover in between because circumstances are constraining your faith. I go through the first half of the book. Sure enough, it's me. Second half, how do you get out? And so uh, we're, they're going, going through the second half of the book, and they come to a verse. It's out of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40. And it says, they that wait on the Lord, he will renew your strength. You'll mount up with wings like eagles. You'll run and not grow weary. You'll walk and not faint. 
And then it says right after it, whenever you see a progression in the Old Testament like that, it's always from the lesser to the greater. I'm like, wait a second. I want to soar like an eagle. I want to run. Unless the greatest thing that God asks of us is to take the next step and walk. Gwen tried to be Ashley's donor, was heartbroken at being disqualified. Then Jeremy insisted. Ashley was dying. He could, and we eventually, each of us, were confronted with a question that all of us have to answer. Do you trust me? He took me to a place beyond my control so I could see him for who he is. The passage is in exactly the right order. He stripped me of everything again, this time including my children, so I could trust them. And I just want to say, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter how far away you feel, whether it's because of your, what's going on in your life or because of your grief, you're never beyond his grace. No matter how far from him we find ourselves, his grace, his strength, his forgiveness are one step away. And if he calls us to follow him, he'll give you the faith to take that step. Faith in Christ isn't a negotiation for things to go our way. It's a total surrender for things to go his way. You have to trust that they're going to go his way. And there's only one deal, and we don't get to make it. It's the one he made for us. He born at Christmas to die at Easter. He lived among us a perfect life that we could not, to pay a price for us that we could not. The key, though, was the resurrection. That's the pillar. Lots of people have died on crosses. Major systems of thought have their central figures who drive the tenets of those religions. There in the grave, he is risen. I was dying physically and someone had to intervene. I could say no, I could walk away, but if I was going to live, I had to accept the gift. No matter how much money I had, no matter who I knew, no matter what I did, I could not save myself. It turns out that's true for us spiritually. The Bible diagnoses us correctly and it talks about sin. And it says it's any word, action, thought. I mean, you could, you could just rattle them off. And it separates us. And the Bible says that none of us are righteous, not one. Not you, not me, none of us. That was the whole point. We're dying spiritually. Somebody has to intervene. That's the point of the cross. It says the wages of our sin is death, eternal separation. And, and before you start feeling too, but hey, I think the scales are going to tip in my favor. Jesus takes that out of our hands. He says, if you're guilty on one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. So even to the uh, people of his day, he said, you know, I, I know you say you haven't killed anybody, but if you've been angry at your brother, same thing. You lost after someone, same as adultery. He takes it away from us. But here's the great transaction. He says, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He took the first step. It says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ. It's literally a transaction. I grew up in the Catholic tradition. I know many of you have. And um, not only in the Catholic tradition, but many different denominations. They'll have, in the stained glass windows in a church, they'll have depicted um, different uh, sayings that Christ had at the, when he was on the cross. The last thing he says is, it is finished. And so when we see that, we say, oh, well, he was about to die. So he says, it is finished, and he dies. Or he came with a particular purpose. He completes the mission. It is finished, and he dies. It turns out it has nothing to do with that. And everybody who was at the foot of the cross would have understood instantly what he meant. It was the completion of a negotiated business contract. You can't afford the price. 
someone stop, steps in and makes the payment on your behalf to close the deal. And they say, it is finished. The word literally is to telestai. It means your debt is paid. You no longer owe. And the people watching them from the cross, they got it. That's what caused the, the Roman centurion who presided over the crucifixion to say, surely this was the Son of God. Friends, if we could earn the favor of God, if we could do it ourselves, I mean, if we just use our analytical thinking, I would say, it feels like, why would Jesus bother to come and die on a cross if we can get there on our own? And the evidence is stacked against us. I don't even live up to my own expectations, let alone his. The other notion I want to talk about, just for a second, and again, I ask for your grace here, is the idea that Jesus was a good man or a good teacher. And again, I appeal to our analytical thinking. It's not possible. He could not have been a good man or a good teacher. And I think C.S. Lewis captures it well. He said, Christ is either who he said he was or he's a lunatic and a liar. He's one or the other. Good man or teacher and not viable. He did not leave us those options, nor did he intend to. When we leave here today, we're going to go back to our offices. We're going to reach in our pocket, take out a badge, and swipe for access. I want to think about that moment when you're doing it today. What happens when God calls you home and you stand before him and he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What are you going to say? If your answer is, hey, I've really done my best. I've, I've, you know, I think the good outweighs the bad. and I'm, 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 Your badge is a collection of your best efforts. I say this with all sensitivity, with all respect and affection. But based on what Jesus says himself, your badge won't work. You won't get in. And this is not my opinion. It comes directly from the Bible. you click the next thing, please? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And then, and then the Apostle Paul says, you're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of our works. Now, we do good things out of thanksgiving. I, could, I do things I appreciate what Finelli did, but I can't pay him back. That's the promise here. He paid for it. Our works are out of thanksgiving, not out of obligation. It's a total transformation. But if you stand before Christ, trusting alone in him, and the finished work of Christ on the cross, you've stepped out of death into life. Don't take my word for it. Go, go read the Gospels. Get into it. Study it like you would any other requirements document or, or, or just dig into any technical document. When you come to the place where you place your trust in Christ alone, your sin debt is paid. You no longer owe. Your burden's lifted. Your future secured. Your sin forgiven. The Bible says he'll take out your heart of stone. He'll give you a heart of flesh. It's like waking up after surgery and you know your disease is gone and you're alive again. It's an awesome place to be. After Ashley and Jeremy's surgery, they were uh, uh, rebranding the hospital and the surgeon that did my second transplant did theirs. And we were at the University of Minnesota and, and they had us sitting on the couch. It was Gwen and I and the kids and there was an Academy Award um, nominated director interviewing us. And he said, Jeremy, you had to be terrified. 10 to 12 hours, you might die. Any man would be afraid of that. What's your greatest fear? Jeremy said without hesitation that I would wake up and Ashley wouldn't. Then he said to Ashley, you've been sick for so long, you probably can't remember what it's like to be well. What's next? And she said, I can dream again. That's the tale of the Christian as we go from death to life through faith in Christ. And my prayer for us is we recognize our condition and accept his gift that we can see that God is in the details. When it seems like all else is gone, that we would discover he is enough. And that no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, 
no matter how far away from him you feel, that you would be able to dream again because you would know you're never beyond his grace. Friends, Christ went to great lengths to secure a deal on our behalf. To you and me, he cries out, to tell us die. Your debt is paid. You no longer owe. Accept his gift. Take the next step. He'll give you the faith to take it. And then you can go ahead and swipe your badge. Thank you for listening to this edition of Faith at Work. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm Carl Grant. Please follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Faith at Work Radio. And for more information on the High Tech Prayer Breakfast, please visit www.hightechprayerbreakfast.org. You've been listening to Faith at Work with Carl Grant.